Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 47, the book of Acts, chapter 21. Well, we're going to continue in the book of Acts, which is our necessary primer to give us uh, the context, the background for understanding everything that comes in the New Testament following the Gospels, especially for understanding Paul's letters. Now, Acts chapter 21 has brought Paul back to Jerusalem from the Aegean Sea region for two purposes. First is to obey the Torah commandment that he participates in the pilgrimage festival of Shavuot, Pentecost. Second, he was delivering money that he collected from the various congregations he visited and the money was for two different purposes. First of all, charity for the poor believers in Jerusalem. But second, it was the half shekel temple tax that every Jew, no matter where they lived, was to contribute annually for operational expenses of the, of the temple. So some of the money was given to James to be distributed. Some of it was given to the priests as the temple tax. Now I concluded our last lesson by telling you that what James and Paul were discussing beginning in verse 17 of Acts 21, and we'll reread that in a minute, brings up a big and important question. It is a question that is central to understanding everything that follows in the book of Acts. And it has to do with what Paul means and what James means and sometimes what other writers of the New Testament mean when they use the term, that hot button term, the law. We have delved into this subject as we've studied the Torah and the other books of the Old Testament but now we're going to explore it in the context of the New Testament to see what the authors of these New Testament books meant by the term law and therefore how we ought to take it to mean as it pertains to ourselves and to the practice of our faith in the 21st century as believers. Now I'm going to disclose to you up front that we're going to get detailed and technical today. But these details and technical items are about things that you can understand. And they are things believers need to know. Some of what you hear today might shake up your world a little bit. Let's begin by rereading part of chapter 21 of Acts. Acts chapter 21. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, go to page 1390. We're going to start reading at verse 17 and go to the end. Acts 21, starting at verse 17. In Yerushalayim, the brothers received us warmly. 
The next day Shaul and the rest of us went to Yaakov, that's James, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, Shaul, Paul, described in detail each of the things God had done among the Gentiles through his efforts. And on hearing it, they praised God. But they also said to him, You see, brother, how many tens of thousands of believers there are among the Judeans. And they are all zealots for the Torah. Now what they've been told about you is that you are teaching all the Jews living among the Goyim, among the Gentiles, to apostize from from Moshe, telling them not to have a Brit Milah, not to have a circumcision for their sons, not to follow the traditions. Well, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come, so do what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them with you. Be purified with them. Pay the expenses connected with having their head shaved. Then everyone will know there's nothing to these rumors which they have heard about you. On the contrary, you yourself stay in line and keep the Torah. However, in regard to the Gentiles who have come to trust in Yeshua, we joined in writing them a letter with our decision that they should abstain from what had been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what is strangled, and from fornication. Well, the next day, Shaul took the men, purified himself along with them, and entered the temple to give notice of when the period of purification would be finished and the offering would, be, would have to be made for each of them. The seven days were almost up when some unbelieving Jews from the province of Asia saw him in the temple. And they stirred up all the crowd and grabbed him. Men of Israel, help! they shouted. This is the man who goes everywhere teaching everyone things against the people, against the Torah, against this place. Now he has even brought some Gentiles into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus from Ephesus in the city with him and assumed that Shaul had brought him into the temple. Well, the whole city was aroused. The people came running from all over. They seized Shaul. They dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. But while they were attempting to kill him, word reached the commander of the Roman battalion that all Jerusalem was in turmoil. Immediately he took officers and soldiers, he charged down upon them, and as soon as they saw the commander, they quit beating Paul. Then the commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be tied up with two chains. He asked who he was, what he'd done. Everyone in the crowd shouted something different, so he... Since he couldn't find out what had happened because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought to the barracks. Well, when Shaul got to the steps, he actually had to be carried by the soldiers because the mob was so wild. The crowd kept following and screaming, Kill him! Well, as Shaul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, Is it all right if I say something to you? And the commander said, You know Greek. Say... Aren't you that Egyptian who tried to start a revolution a while back and led 4,000 armed terrorists out into the desert? Shaul said, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of an important city. I ask your permission to let me speak to the people. Having received permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned with his hand to the people. And when they finally became still, he addressed them in Hebrew.
So the setting is this. Paul has completed his arduous journey from Macedonia to Jerusalem. It's been many years, perhaps as many as 20, since Paul has come to Jerusalem and met with James and the elders who formed the leadership council of the way. Now I want to stress, we cannot be 100% certain that Paul has stayed away from Jerusalem for two decades. It is only that the scriptural record makes no mention that he'd been in Jerusalem since he attended that Jerusalem council meeting that we read about back in Acts chapter 15. There, this was the meeting whereby the issue of circumcision for Gentiles was its cause. But also whereby a set of rules were issued. All the rules were prohibitions for Gentiles who wanted to join the way. And these rules insisted upon substantive lifestyle changes for new Gentile believers that dealt with diet, sexual practices, and involvement with idols. Yet just because Paul's presence in Jerusalem wasn't recorded in the Bible, um, and it's not ironclad proof that he hadn't come at other but unrecorded times. Now I personally find it kind of hard to swallow that the pious Pharisee Shaul would have ignored the God-ordained Torah laws that required all Israelites to make three annual pilgrimages to the temple in Jerusalem once maybe, but for 15 or 20 straight years? These biblical feasts had set the rhythm of Jewish society for centuries. And the feast laws were not optional for Jews. To, to not make the required pilgrimages was sin. That said, only a relatively small portion of the Jewish families living in the diaspora ever made that journey, let alone making it three times per year. The cost in money and time was significant. It was beyond the practical means of most of the diaspora Jews. So the other side of the coin is, I can see why Paul, himself a diaspora Jew, may have elected to not make the God-commanded pilgrimages for several years in order to busy himself with evangelizing. But then there's this matter of the contributions that Paul was collecting. Now we discussed last time that it was a custom that every Jew, no matter where they lived, was to contribute a so-called half-shekel temple tax annually. And by design, each male adult was supposed to bring it to the temple and personally give it to the priests, much in the same attitude as offering a sacrifice. But since only a small portion of the millions of diaspora Jews made the trip to Jerusalem, the local synagogues would collect the temple tax, and then a representative of, of a synagogue, or perhaps a group of synagogues, would take the combined collected funds to the temple. It had become customary to collect and pay the temple tax on the occasion 
of the Shavuot ceremonies. And by the way, there are reliable historical numbers that tell us how many Jews were alive at this time. In 48 AD, Emperor Claudius took a census and it revealed that 6,994,000 Jews lived in the Roman Empire. And some lived outside the Roman Empire, so they weren't counted. By the time of the destruction of the temple, a little over 20 years later from the time we're talking about here, there were at least 8 million Jews alive, probably somewhat more with about 2 million or so of them living in the Holy Land. Thus, even if half a million diaspora Jews journeyed to Jerusalem for the three pilgrimage feasts, that was still only perhaps 6 or 7% of the total Jewish population, a fraction of those who were supposed to come according to the law. Well, James and the elders of the way greeted Paul with warmth and they were anxious to hear what was happening with Paul's ministry over these past several years. They fully knew he had a deep involvement with Gentiles, both pagans and God-fearers. We are told that they were just overjoyed to hear of Paul's great progress in bringing so many Gentiles into the fold. It's noteworthy that their reaction was not to congratulate Paul, but rather to praise God for it, it, properly giving credit where it's due. Paul must have taken some time to explain what had happened, since we're told that he went into detail about it. In return, James explains to Paul that there had been amazing progress right here in the Holy Land as well. He says, tens of thousands of Judeans, that is, Jews who resided in the Roman province of Judea, had come to faith. But they were also zealous for the Torah. It is my opinion that we can casually read this report and assume it to mean that those Jews who were already zealous for the Torah, the law, became believers in Yeshua. But it can just as easily be taken to mean that as a result of their salvation in Christ, they became zealous for the Torah. Although I'm not a Jew, that is certainly what happened to me, even if it wasn't right away. And I know that many thousands of Christians, as a result of their faith, became zealous for the Torah when before salvation they didn't even know what the Torah was the important point is James is connecting faith in Yeshua with zealousness for the Torah and he's presenting it as something perfectly natural and with this zealousness came a determination to obey God but this also presents a problem because rumors have reached Jerusalem that Paul has been teaching the diaspora Jews to not obey God. 
Specifically, the issue of circumcision once again pops up. And the rumors say that Paul has not only been teaching against the requirements set down by Moses for male circumcision, but also that Paul told the believing Jews of the diaspora that they could cease obeying Jewish customs. I want to be clear. The passage says that even though Paul told James in detail about what had been happening with who? The Gentiles. He was those that he was evangelizing. The rumors against Paul were not about the Gentiles. They were about the Jews that Paul had been dealing with. Therefore, for Jews, adherence to Jewish customs and traditions was a significant issue. But it really didn't trouble them very much about whatever the Gentiles did or didn't do. Our complete Jewish Bible uses the word traditions instead of customs as we find in most Bibles and that is certainly the better translation from the Jewish perspective of the time frame of when this passage was written. To Gentile Christian ears this is this basically sounds maybe it sounds that way to you like an accusation that Paul is not obeying the biblical laws of Moses but that really isn't it. Now we've discussed on numerous occasions that Jewish law, halakha, was the root of religious authority and lifestyle in Judaism. And Jewish law was this fusion of the biblical law of Moses along with traditions that had been developed in the synagogue and then generously peppered with ancient cultural customs of the Jewish people. Just as in Christianity, whereby to the minds of average Christians, there is no discernible difference between a church doctrine, a church tradition, and the Holy Scriptures. So in the minds of average Jews, there is no discernible difference between a Jewish tradition, a Jewish custom, and the biblical laws of Moses. In both religions, it is assumed that the doctrines and traditions decided upon by their religious authorities accurately reflect the meaning and the intent of the Bible. So the thought is, if you're following a tradition or a custom, then, for all intents and purposes, you must be following the Bible. Well, thus in verse 21... When James speaks of Paul teaching the Jews to apostatize from Moses, as well as from circumcision, even from Jewish traditions and customs, he is speaking about apostatizing from halakha, the entire body of Jewish law. Further, it was simply long-established Jewish shorthand to say that one was to obey Moses when what that meant technically is to obey the laws of Moses. Thus, from a scholarly viewpoint, to apostize from Moses means to apostize from the commandments of God given to Moses on Mount Sinai. 
However, by New Testament times, times we're talking about here, in the common way of speaking, to apostatize from Moses really meant to apostatize from halakha, from Jewish law. But then there was yet another serious issue brought up that just won't go away regarding believers. It was this issue of circumcision. Now, interestingly, the complaint of the zealous Judean believers is not that Paul is against circumcising Gentiles, but rather, supposedly, he's against circumcising fellow Jews. Now, circumcision is the biblical sign that a person is a member of God's covenant people. So essentially, a Jew who refuses circumcision removes himself from being Jewish. Paul is being accused then of converting Jews to Gentiles by teaching against circumcision. Of course, Paul did no such thing. However, within a few more decades, follow me, this would be exactly what the Gentile-controlled church would demand and ordain as a fundamental Christian doctrine. That is, the church bishops agreed that indeed circumcision was the sign of being part of God's covenant people and the church wanted no part of it. Therefore, it was decided that to to be a Christian, one could not be circumcised. In fact, if a Jew wanted to follow Christ, he too could not be circumcised. Why? Because to the Jewish community and to the Gentile community, by refusing circumcision, a Jew renounced his Hebrew heritage and he became a Gentile. The church wished to be a Gentiles-only institution. And for a long time, it used a prohibition against circumcision to enforce it. Now, with those preliminaries out of the way, verse 22 of Acts chapter 21 is where the rubber hits the road. James asks a rhetorical question of Paul. What's to be done? What's to be done? Now I say rhetorical because he's already thought this through. He knows exactly what he's going to do. These tens of thousands of local Jews who are in Jerusalem for the holy feast of Shavuot, now these are believing Jews who are upset because they think Paul is a traitor to Judaism. They're going to know right away Paul's arrived. And this is going to lead to confrontation and to trouble. So, indeed, what's to be done? Well, what comes next makes it crystal clear that James knew he needed Paul's help to squelch this dangerous and unfounded rumor. That is, James' solution is to have a public display by Paul 
that would demonstrate once and for all his continuing devotion to Jewish law. Now before we get into the particulars of that demonstration, let's see what some of the revered early church fathers thought about this situation. The situation with Paul. And, and the rumors that were flying around about this. And how James decided to handle it. Here in Acts 21. In a letter just called Letter 82 that he wrote a little bit after 400 AD, Augustine, the early church father Augustine, had this to say. Listen, to, listen carefully to this. It is quite clear, I think, that James gave his advice in order to show the falsity of his views supposed to be Paul's. Which certain Jews who had come to believe in Christ but were still zealous for the law had heard about him. Namely, that through the teaching of Christ, the commandments written by the direction of God and transmitted by Moses to the fathers were now thought to be sacrilegious and worthy of rejection. These reports were not circulated about Paul by those who understood the spirit in which the Jewish converts felt bound to make those observances, namely because of their being prescribed by divine authority and for the sake of the prophetic holiness of those ceremonies, but not for the attaining of salvation. If only the church at large had listened to Augustine she might not have embarked on this terrible path of anti-Semitism and anti-law that she's followed for 19 centuries. It is a path that has resulted in a number of wrong-minded doctrines that have not only put up a wall between Jews and Christians, but has also mischaracterized God's word concerning our all-important relationship with Him. Augustine rightly says that it was Christ's own teaching of God's commandments that validated that the law was still alive and relevant. He was probably referring to Matthew chapter 5. But certain Jews, some of the myriads of Judean Jews who had come to believe in Christ, also believed a slanderous lie that Paul was teaching that believing Jews should now disregard observance of the law as a bad thing, sacrilegious, and thus they should reject the law of Moses. <clears throat> but what I especially appreciate is where Augustine points out that while the law still carries the same divine authority it always has, the law was not for attaining salvation. Exactly right. The law was not now, it had never been for the purpose of attaining a salvation. Trusting Christ is how Jews or Gentiles obtain salvation. But that reality didn't somehow abolish the law. It was never an either or proposition that grace replaces law or that one must choose between grace or law 
or that the new replaces the old. As Augustine points out, that fact comes from God and it was taught by Christ himself. So here we have one early church father, Augustine, by the way, whose voice was ignored on this and other matters. It was overridden by the Rome-based church bishops. We have an early church father who understands our pertinent passage in Acts literally and therefore correctly. But now listen to another early church father, Chrysostom, who lived at the same time as Augustine. Unfortunately, what we hear from Chrysostom is him upholding the Roman church doctrine that the law was dead and gone and so no one, Jew or Gentile, had any business following it. Listen to what Chrysostom said. Against this, Paul defends himself and shows he does that he does this not of his choice. How did they persuade him? It was part of, a, of the divine plan. It was condescension on his part. So this was no hindrance to the preaching, since it was they themselves who decided such things. So he does not accuse Peter in any way. For what he himself did here is what Peter did on that occasion when he held his peace and established his doctrine. He had to do something more to persuade them that you observe the law. Condescension's what it is. So don't be alarmed. I have in earlier Acts lessons familiarized you with this same line of tortured reasoning from a number of early church fathers about positions they have taken against the continuing relevance of the law. Positions which without their fanciful distortions are otherwise not defensible. Their position is that Paul and Peter and in some cases James are insincere when the scriptures find them observing the law or them telling others to do so. They're insincere. Thus, whenever we find them personally obeying the law or telling others to obey it, it's not by their free will or choice, like Chrysostom said, that they do this. Rather, their circumstances are compelling them to pretend. But these early church fathers say that they are pretending to be obedient to the law in order to serve the greater good of expanding the gospel so that they can get rid of the law. How about that for logic? The idea is that Paul, Peter, and James are deceiving others in their words and deeds so that more people might receive salvation. Here Chrysostom tells his readers to, therefore, not be alarmed by what the Bible plainly says. It's just rather that Paul was merely being condescending, to use Chrysostom's term, by agreeing 
to James' instruction to participate in a holy vow offering to pay for four others to do so as well. But ultimately, this was God's divine plan, says Chrysostom, that it happened this way. Therefore, neither Paul nor James was doing any wrong by their insincerity and in their play-acting. You like that? Pretty good, huh? Does this not make you angry? If it doesn't, why not? Here we have the recorded words of one of the men who was instrumental in shaping the fundamental doctrines that the church is built upon. Saying that Paul, Peter, and James don't mean what they say or do when it comes to the law of Moses. It was all for show. Rather, they are intentionally deceiving the new believers and potential new believers, but it was for their own good. And that God is the father of this deception. But that's okay, because it's just all part of his divine plan that all these New Testament writers keep obeying the law and and urging others to do so, but later on, after they've converted more people, then they'll tell them the truth. Happily, we have a plain admission by Augustine that indeed it was Christ's own teaching that his followers should obey the commandments. But sadly, that church father was not listened to very much because he wouldn't follow in lockstep with the agenda of the bishops of Rome and their allies. Well, getting back to our passage in Acts, in verse 23, James begins to tell Paul exactly what he needs to do to put down this false rumor against him. Paul is to go with four men who are under a vow. He will pay his and and their expenses and then he will go through the standard purification procedures that include certain altar sacrifices. This way, says James in verse 24, these upset Judean Jewish believers will see for themselves that the rumors they've heard about Paul are false. And that in fact, Paul himself keeps the Torah scrupulously. Now I've said on numerous occasions that it is the book of Acts that defines who the historical Paul is. And that without the book of Acts it is all too easy to distort Paul's several epistles and make them sound as though he was anti-law, even anti-Jewish. But here in Acts 21 it is made abundantly clear that Paul himself obeyed the law. So just so there's no doubt or ambiguity about this fact, I'm going to repeat this verse to you from a couple of common English Bible versions so that it is explicit to all who are listening to my words uh, that the intent of this passage is the same no matter what version you you might read it from. Listen to Acts 21-24 from the the, uh, King James Version. 
take them and purify thyself with them and be at charges with them that they may shave their heads and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. In the NIV, take these men, join in their purification rites, pay their expenses so that they can have their head shaved. Then everybody will know there is no truth to these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. Revised Standard Version. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. This all will know there is nothing in what they've been told about you but that you yourself live in observance of the law. Any questions? Does Paul observe the law? Yeah. He says he does. They say he does. Every version that I checked, and it was many has it that James is having Paul perform this vow offering and ritual purification so that everyone can visibly and tangibly see that Paul keeps and obeys the law. Now I hope you now grasp why if they were going to insist on creating and supporting a church doctrine that says that Paul was against believers obeying the law that some of the early Gentile church fathers had little choice except to come up with the most intellectually dishonest distortions to make it seem so. They determined that despite what scripture plainly says the accepted church doctrine had to be upheld. So the spin is that Paul was deliberately deceiving people and God's instruction no less so that the gospel could go forth all the better. I told you at the outset, some of what you heard today would shake your world. But what needs to be shaken is not your faith in God, or in Yeshua, or in God's Word. What needs to be shaken is your faith in man-made religious doctrines. Doctrines that have ruled over the institutional church for so very long and many of them need to be exposed for what they are and then they need to be reformed well now for the $64,000 question when verse 24 says that Paul was being obedient to the law what does that mean? now remember just moments earlier James said his goal was to publicly demonstrate that Paul did not apostatize from Moses or the traditions. Acts 21.21 Now what they've been told about you is that you are teaching all the Jews living among the Goyim, Gentiles, to apostatize from Moses, telling them not to have a circumcision for their sons and not to follow the traditions. James is clearly talking about Holocaust the overall body of Jewish law that had developed especially since the creation of the synagogue system during or shortly after the Babylonian exile and Halakha, Jewish law consisted again of a fusion of the biblical laws of Moses given on Mount Sinai plus 
the traditions of the rabbis, and the many long-held Jewish cultural customs. In Greek, the word we find in the original scripture to, start, to describe this is nomos, which is usually translated in English Bibles as law. Nothing wrong with that translation, by the way. However, as the most authoritative lexicons on Greek in use today, those such as the, the, the Freiburg or the Thayer lexicons, the term nomos means, and I quote to you, anything established, anything received by usage, a custom, a law, or a command. That's the meaning of nomos. Thus, nomos can be used in a number of ways. It has a wide range of meaning. And we have to derive from the context how the author means for us to take it in any given circumstance. As used in Acts 21-24, nomos is meant as a general term to denote not only an obedience to God's commandments, but also an allegiance to their Hebrew heritage and an unwavering identity as a Jew and everything that entails. So James is having Paul prove to all these Jews who've gathered in Jerusalem for Shavuot that he remains fully Jewish. Fully committed to Jewish practices and traditional religious beliefs. And when one honestly and fairly reads Paul in his epistles and reads what Luke says about Paul in Acts within the Hebrew context that is the entire Holy Bible and then we find that Paul indeed remained fully Jewish, fully committed to Jewish practices. All that changed in Paul is that he came to understand that Yeshua of Nazareth was the Messiah that, God had, that, that Israel had been waiting for for centuries and that Yeshua was the Son of God. So of all the possible things that James might ask Paul to do, the whole range of things he could ask Paul to do to prove himself, why would he choose to have him participate in a vow offering and a ritual purification. Why that? It is because undertaking a vow was seen in Paul's day as an affirmation of one's devotion to the laws of Moses and to the sanctity of the temple. It is fascinating that we see that Herod Agrippa, Herod the great son, had done the same thing some years earlier in Josephus's historical work Antiquities. He says this, Agrippa naturally, since he was to go back with improved fortunes, turned quickly homewards. Upon entering Jerusalem, he offered sacrifices of thanksgiving, omitting none of the ritual enjoined by our law. Accordingly, he also arranged for a very considerable number of Nazarites to be shorn. So from a Jewish cultural perspective, 
Not only does it prove a person's loyalty to Judaism to offer sacrifices in the temple, but it was regarded as particularly meritorious if one paid for the vow offerings of others. Now notice that James says, by the way, we have four men who are under a vow. Think about what he just said. We have four men who are under a vow. The we apparently means the four were members of the way. Who else could the we be? They were believers. You get that? They were believers, these four men. They were members of the way. We have four men. So picture this. Four believing Jews were just completing a vow and were about to ritually purify themselves and then go into the temple to sacrifice at the altar. But wait, haven't we been taught that the law is dead and gone? Apparently believers in Paul's day sure didn't think so. This vow offering in verse 24 clearly was the formal ending of a Nazarite vow, the length of which was usually 30 days, one lunar cycle. Exactly what was vowed by these four believing Jews is not told to us. But it doesn't really matter because common to all vows of this type were one could not drink wine or have any grape product or become ritually unclean or cut their hair any time during that 30 days. At the end of the vow period, the candidate was to bring three different offerings of sacrifice to the temple. A peace offering, a sin offering, and what is also called a whole offering, sometimes a bird offering. This was an expensive proposition. This wasn't cheap. So for Paul to pay for four men, plus himself, showed an extraordinary level of dedication and generosity Uh, to those who were watching him. As important as Paul was to the movement, it was James' intent that Paul's actions would make an impact such that it would be nearly impossible for all those skeptical Jews to continue believing this false rumor that Paul had turned away from Judaism. Well, verse 25 is fascinating. What's James trying to communicate? Why remind Paul of the very thing he was instrumental in bringing about concerning the requirements that the Jerusalem Council put on Gentiles who wanted to join the way? To James, there was apparently some connection between what Paul was doing with the Gentiles and the belief among the Judean Jews that Paul had apostatized from Judaism. I think that Joseph Shulam probably has it right when he surmises that the more zealous that Jews were, the more problem they personally had was association with Gentiles. Yes, the Jerusalem Council had declared its edict regarding the acceptance of Gentiles. Yes, these Jews were no doubt also aware of Peter's encounter with God in a vision that when that cloth with the animals was let down from heaven. 
whereby God told Peter that the Jewish tradition that Gentiles were inherently unclean was wrong. However, we have to keep reminding ourselves that what Jews followed was halakha, Jewish law. And that didn't change in any significant way for Jews who accepted Yeshua as Messiah. So even if Gentiles weren't inherently unclean, to the Jewish mind, Gentiles were involved nearly daily in unclean activities that thus rendered them ritually unclean, just as it would, could render any Jew ritually unclean. Add to that the subjugation of Rome that the Jews were under, and regardless of the gospel, Jews had little regard for Gentiles. That Paul seems so focused on saving Gentiles, that didn't go over very well at all. At least it didn't among the Holy Land Jews. Well, the other point is, the other point in James reminding Paul of the Jerusalem Council Edict was probably to affirm that it was still in force as originally given. Nothing had changed or supplanted it by now. Time that was probably 20 years later. Well, verse 26 informs us that Paul did what James suggested, and he did it immediately the next day. First he purified himself. Now he had come from the diaspora, so it was a given that he would arrive in Jerusalem in a ritually unclean state. Now clean, he was able to enter the outer courts of the temple, but only to tell the priests when his period of purification would end, which would then determine when he could approach the altar area to make the vow sacrifices. The purification rituals can be described mainly as a wash and a wait. That is, one had to immerse in water, and then afterwards, depending on the type of impurity one was being cleansed from, had to wait anywhere from the change of the current day to the next, or commonly seven days. Verse 27 confirms the wait for Paul was seven days. Everything seemed to be going to plan when some non-believing Jews from Asia recognized Paul. What were they doing there in Jerusalem at the same time as Paul? They'd come for Shavuot. Just what they were supposed to be doing. They knew immediately who it was. So they grabbed him and they began to shout for other Jews to come and help him deal with this apostate from Judaism. So the process that James had envisioned was prematurely interrupted. Paul never got the opportunity to bring his sacrifices along with the four men and their sacrifices to the temple altar. Instead, the prophecy that a god had prophesied to Paul in Caesarea was coming about. And we'll finish up Acts chapter 21 next time.